Will you please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, and these brothers have some Bibles so that you can follow along. So as they make their way to the back, if you need a Bible, get their attention, and that is marked for you at Jonah chapter 1. You can keep that Bible, bring it back with you each week, and we will look at God's Word together each Lord's Day. Today, Jonah chapter 1, and before we begin the message, just a couple of uh, items with regard to our congregation. One is that this is the time of year when our college students who are attending college away start to head back. Some have already headed back. Some are going this week. I had intended to, at the end of the service this morning, to have those who are going away to come up front so you know who they are and we could pray for them. I was not successful at trying to get a full list of who that is. And so uh, I'm not doing that, but I do want to make mention to you that we have a number of young people in our church who are attending college out of state. They're going to be heading uh, out of state uh, in the next few weeks, so please uphold them in in prayer uh, over this next uh, semester. And then another item is the musicians who have just exited the platform. Uh, They're all going to be away next week. All of them. Every last one. They're all attending a conference next week. So all the musicians are gone to a Christian conference for how to be musicians. That goes through Sunday. I've never understood the Christian conferences that go through Sunday, especially when you have taken all the musicians throughout the country to gather them. So we won't be alone. There are churches all over the country who will have no musicians because they're all gathered in Nashville next week for this uh, for this conference. But really, that's what they're going to be doing. So I'm giving you a heads up. Because next week, for the first time ever, I think, in the history of our church, uh, the entirety of our song service will be sans uh, instruments. As we sang the one verse of Holy, 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 we will be doing that for the entirety next week. And uh, so bring your, bring your congregational voice with you. <clears throat> we'll identify any Barney Fifes in our, in our congregation. Some of you know what that means. Jonah chapter 1. Those of you who are boxing fans probably have certain bouts that you consider to be epic. In my day, there was Ali Frazier and the Thrilla in Manila. Later, with a Detroit flavor featuring Tommy the Hitman Hearns, there was Hearns Leonard twice. There was Hearns Hagler, Hearns Duran, and many others. For the heavyweights, there were... Bouts like Tyson and Holyfield more than once. And for those who don't follow any of that, there's always Rocky versus whoever in the Rocky versus 1 through 16 or or whatever it is. But before all of that, back in the 40s, there was what was then billed as the fight of the century. It involved Detroit's own Joe Lewis and a smaller but faster fighter named Billy Kahn. And many thought that Khan was too quick for Lewis. And on the night before the fight, he was asked how he could slow down the fleet-footed Khan. And Lewis famously replied, he can run, but he can't hide. That's where that phrase comes from. Today, we continue the series begun last week in the book of Jonah. We saw last week that God's prophet was a spiritually privileged person In a number of ways, he was raised among God's people. He was raised among the prophets of God. And as a prophet himself, he was a spokesman for God. 
But when God gave him a command that he did not like, namely to go and to preach to the hated and dangerous Ninevites, Jonah refused. He ran. But we're going to see that because he was God's child and because God always has the last word, Jonah, like us, could run, but he couldn't hide. Let's bow and ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Father, we thank you that we are here. We thank you because it is only because of you that we can do anything. And then to be able to do this because of you, because you have moved in our hearts to cause us to want to desire to be among your people and in a special way in your presence and with your word before us. Lord, this is all because of you, and so we thank you. And then we ask you, Lord, to aid us now in our delivering of God's word and our hearing of God's word. Help us to be people who heed what we hear, apply it to our lives, so that we can bring glory to the one who has given us this word for our edification and for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, inserted in your program today and every Sunday is the outline for the message, so I encourage you to take that out if you don't have it as yet, so that you can follow along. And I say, first of all there, that Jonah's rebellion teaches us that about the causes of disobedience. Jonah's rebellion teaches us concerning the causes of disobedience. And the first of those causes is this. It's a rejection of God's word. It begins with rejection of God's word. And I say that for this reason. The very first line in the book of Jonah, chapter 1 and verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, that phrase, the word of the Lord came, is a very common one among the prophets in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Those are those obscure names. Some of them are called the major prophets simply because the books are longer. Some called the minor prophets. The books are shorter. But among them, they have this in common. The word of the Lord came to them. In fact, it's used over 100 times in the books of the prophets. And the prophets who received the word were the recipients of communication from God. They were given information from God about themselves, about their society, about their nation. They would often be brought into the presence of God in a special way to be entrusted with His special revelation, His special making known of Himself and His plans. They describe these times of God speaking to them in a number of ways as a burden on their shoulders, as a hammer breaking their rocky hearts, as a fire raging within them. It was bitter sometimes to taste. It just came. It gripped their minds and it touched their consciences. It affected their emotions. They could not escape the fact that God was speaking to them and they in turn were to speak God's word to others. The word of the Lord came to Jonah in unmistakable fashion. Verse 2 says, quotes God as saying to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. So here is a prophet of God who is accustomed to having the word of God come to him. It now comes to him in very clear form. Go and do this. But we know Jonah did not do so. We saw that last week. Most of us know the story. So what was Jonah's problem? Well, we know what it was not. 
we know it was not a lack of clarity on the part of God. And it was not a lack of understanding on the part of Jonah. His problem was not an intellectual one. His problem wasn't that he was fuzzy about the details. Verse 2 is very clear about what it is that God is telling him to do. Instead, Jonah's problem was a moral one. It was a moral problem in that he did not want to do what God had instructed. We saw last week why. God says, go and preach to the great city of Nineveh. And I recounted for you what historians have said about the Ninevites and about their cruelty and their violence. And so they were a dangerous and they were a hated people among Jonah's nation. So he understood it perfectly, but Jonah's will came into conflict with God's. God clearly said, do this. And Jonah didn't want to. To be sure, Jonah had his own reasons. And if you were with us last week, you heard how lousy the the Ninevites were and how scary they were. And so anyone could rationalize not wanting to do what God says. But that's not good enough among God's people. God is the one who is in control. God is the one who tells us what to do and we are to obey. And certainly among God's people, a prophet of God is to do that. He understood it, but his will came into conflict with God's. That's why the Bible tells us the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. We have the flesh, that is, not our bodies. That's a different word in your New Testament. The word that's translated flesh here is sometimes translated your sin nature. The sin nature desires what is contrary to the spirit of God. And all of us have that battle within us. And God shined a light on a part of Jonah's heart that lived in obscurity, simply awaiting a test for that part of his heart. So here's Jonah, this privileged prophet. He has the word of the Lord come to him. Now he has the word of the Lord come to him in this particular way, and he doesn't like what he hears. The flesh desires what's contrary to what God wants. And his flesh, his sinful nature, arises up in him so that he rebels against what God has said he is to do. You and I have that same danger. We have lurking in our hearts recesses of our hearts that we know nothing about. Awaiting only the right command, the right test in order to determine our faithfulness to God. That's why the Bible says this. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That is, you can be standing firm in all kinds of things, doing all kinds of the right things. And yet there are still things about your heart and about my heart we know nothing about. And when the right test comes, the right buttons are pushed, then it reveals something about us. God's word has the ability to reveal such spiritual vulnerabilities in all of us. It's penetrating. It sees our desires. It sees our motivations, our ambitions. Where our allegiances lie. The Bible can do that because it's the word of the omniscient, all-knowing God. And so through his word, though the last book was written nearly 2,000 years ago, it can still search our, our hearts. And so the Bible says of the Bible, the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. 
Jonah could run. He's on the run, as we're going to see, but he can't hide. And God has put a spotlight on something about Jonah that Jonah didn't know heretofore. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So picture Jonah. Jonah has gotten this clear word from the Lord. Jonah has been serving the Lord. He's been doing all the stuff that a servant of the Lord would do. The people around him see Jonah. They know Jonah. Everything's going as it has in Jonah's life. Everything appears to be in order, but Jonah has received a word he doesn't like. And so picture Jonah now hurriedly getting his affairs in order. He's getting the money out in his pocket. He's packing his bags. He's hurriedly going somewhere. And the people around him who all know Jonah to be this faithful prophet of God, they're thinking, hey, he must be on a mission for God. He's ready to go out and do another great deed for God. He's got urgent business on behalf of the Lord. But we know the story, having read it. The truth is Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to be shown mercy, according to chapter 4 and verse 2. And he certainly did not want to be the instrument of that mercy. After all, what would people say? Just think about that. We hate the Ninevites. The Ninevites have harassed us. For years, they've threatened us. In fact, sometime in the near future, they are actually going to come and conquer and take captive. That was always a threat. And so they were they were hated. What would people say if Jonah was a traitor to his nation, in effect? By going and preaching to these despised people. Can you see the headlines in the Jerusalem Gazette? Evangelist Jonah leads the hated Ninevites to the Lord. He'd be despised. His reputation would be in tatters. He knows that. So Jonah has lots of reasons. My own people are going to hate me. They don't deserve it. They're horrible people. They've done what they've done. Disobedience begins with a rejection of God's word. Let me just stop here for a moment before we move on. And say, friends, think about the commands that God has given in his word to you. And think about all of the excuses that we use and all the rationalizations that we use to fail to obey that word. Husbands, love your wives. That's a command of Almighty God. Now, your annotated version says this. If you're writing a version of the Bible with the heart of Jonah, you write something like, Husbands, love your wives when you like them. Husbands, love your wives when it feels right. Husbands, love your wives when they do what you want them to do. When they are what you want them to be. And God says none of that. Husbands, love your wives. Can you tell I'm burdened about that? 
It's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to your family. It's a big deal to the family of families that is the church. That we obey. And that's just, of course, one command. And then there's wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Oh, yikes. Submit? What do you think I am, a doormat? I mean, that is just such old school. What century do you come from? But God says that. Straight up, Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Place yourself under their leadership. But if you're a Jonette, And you have your own version, your own annotated version. It's wives, submit yourselves to your husbands when you like them. When you like what they're doing. When they're doing it the way you want them to do it. You see how this dynamic goes? And as a result of that, you get people who sit in churches week after week after week. And ignore God's clear command. And rationalize and justify their failure to obey. Well, that could go on. Commands in God's word to evangelize. To give God's word. Commands in God's word for parents to raise their children. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And yet we get parents instead... Of getting their instructions from God Almighty. They get it from psychology. They get it from Christian psychologists. And our children are reaping the whirlwind as a result. Disobedience begins with rejection of God's word. And I say in your outline, it continues with rejection of God's conviction. Verse 3. Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed to Tarshish. And that's literally, the NIV says what it I just read and what you have in front of you, most of you. But that's literally in Hebrew this. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You see, he knows he's doing wrong. And so now he's trying to cover for it by running. But God is present everywhere. How's he going to run from God? He can run, but what? God's present everywhere, but God is not present everywhere in just the same way. In fact, it just happens that this week I had an email correspondence with someone in our church asking that very question about how can a holy God be present in hell? If God's omnipresent, if he's present everywhere, is he present in hell? The answer to that is yes. God's present in hell. He's present everywhere, but he's not present everywhere in the same way. His presence can be a blessing. As it is when we are in right relation to him, but it can be a curse when we are not. When we are sinning against God, the last thing we want is the presence of God. The last thing we want is the consciousness of God. And so we try to put it out of our minds, but where can we go? And David asked that very thing in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, you are there. So this is the situation of the prophet. And this is the situation for us. When we sin, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to think about it. And so 
You made it to church today, and I congratulate you, and I mean that. Thank God you're here. We're all here. Thank the Lord for that. But when you're in this kind of situation, you find yourself every week, I'm not sure if I'm going. I mean, I'm really not sure I want to be around that. I'm not sure I want to be around that word. I'm not sure I want to be around the conviction of those people. I don't want to be around the presence of God when I'm sinning. And so instead of traveling northeast to Nineveh, Jonah fled by sea in the opposite direction. He boarded a ship to Joppa on Israel's coast, about 35 miles from Samaria and about the same distance from Jerusalem. And the ship was bound for Tarshish, ultimately. That is in southern Spain, and it's about 2,500 miles west of Joppa. So instead of going to Nineveh, he's going the opposite direction, and he's going 2,500 miles west of where he's going to pick up his his ship. And since Tarshish was a Phoenician colony, the ship sailors were in all likelihood Phoenicians. They were known for their seagoing vessels and for their skill on the water. This had a great cost to flee the presence of God because of his sin for for Jonah. We're told that he paid the fare in verse 3. And Jonah goes out of his way. I believe this is autobiographical that Jonah actually wrote about Jonah. And Jonah says of himself, he paid the fare. If you ever just, just don't skip those details. Why does he include he paid the fare? I mean, he, he's making the point that I went out of my way to do this, to run from the Lord. And I plunked my money down to move in the opposite direction of where the Lord had told me to go. He paid the fare, but he paid a much higher price. As he flees from God's presence, he is fleeing from the one the psalmist tells us in whose presence is fullness of joy. That's ultimately what's going to happen to you, friend, and me. We sin, we flee, we lose. So Jonah's rebellion teaches us the causes of disobedience, rejection of God's word, ongoing rejection of God's conviction. We want to get out from under that. But secondly, it teaches us the consequences of disobedience. Verse 3 says, Jonah ran away from the Lord. He headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. For this purpose, to flee from the Lord. Jonah ran, can't hide because there is no escape from God. And he would learn very soon, as most of us know the story, what the writer of Hebrews said. Namely, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But beyond that, Jonah's experience shows the downward spiral that disobedience initiates. In the past, Jonah lived in accordance with the principles of God's word. He knew the blessing of his relationship with God, but not now. Jonah is now adrift, literally. No longer anchored to the certainty and the security of God's truth and presence. And the same writer of Hebrews who said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, warns of the dangers of allowing ourselves to become unmoored from our past stability 
when Hebrews says this, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, initially, Jonah may have felt justified in his decision to run because his plans seemed to be coming together. Verse 3 says he decided where he was going to go. He's going to go to Tarshish. So he heads to the docks in Joppa to catch a boat. Now, if you just read over this carefully, you won't catch that order. But Jonah's decided, I'm going to Tarshish. So now I need to go and find a boat that's headed in that direction. So the text doesn't say he went to find a boat and there happened to be a boat going to Tarshish. No, I'm going to Tarshish. And I'm looking for a boat that's going in that direction. And sure enough, the plan seems to be coming together. He goes to the docks in Joppa to catch a boat. But what if no one's headed to Tarshish? But as providence would have it, sure enough, it says he found a ship bound for that port. A favorable circumstance right out of the gate of rebellion. So what should... Jonah make of that. He feels guilty undoubtedly, but perhaps God understands his reasoning for not wanting to obey the command to go to Nineveh. One commentator imagines what Jonah might be thinking. Was God being merciful to him after all? Was this a sign from God prospering him despite the pangs of conscience he's experiencing? Did God in some way sympathize with Jonah and understand the very difficult position in which he had placed his servant? Here at last was the prospect of several days on board ship I'll take some time to think about it, to reason through the matter, to avoid foolishly and recklessly just heading off to Nineveh, like God had said. After all, Jonah might well have thought, maybe I was mistaken regarding what God said. Now, remember, we saw in verse 2, God's perfectly clear. But this is the kind of machinations that go on in our minds when we disobey God. Maybe I'm mistaken. And in that frame of mind, and the provision of a boat heading in the direction that he wanted... Perhaps he thinks this is a smiling providence from God. You see, friends, when we interpret our circumstances through our experience, we're interpreting them through lenses that we have chosen. And having rejected God's directives, we then look at our situation through some other prism other than God's word. And it always deceives since anything contrary to God's truth is, by definition, misleading. Charles Spurgeon told the story of a school friend that he had who had a violent temper. He would often flare up with anger. Invariably, Spurgeon recalled, this friend would throw something when he was angry. But what struck me, Spurgeon said, was not that he was angry or even that he would throw something when he was angry, but that whenever he was angry... There was always something available to throw. You see, when you adopt a particular perspective that arises out of your heart, that is not in keeping with the truth that God gives us in his word, now you interpret your circumstances wrongly. It's often true in the Christian life that when we rebel against God, there's often the means available to do it. And there are often even reasons, and for us, good reasons to do it. But rather than seeing this as somehow 
approving of what we've done. We should see it as a temptation to continue in disobedience. Hear this. When we are on the run from God, His providences are tests, not excuses. And yet, we look around us, we look at the circumstances, we evaluate the circumstances, not from the truth of God's Word, but from our disobedience, and thereby... They're used as excuses for our rebellion. So the consequences of this disobedience, there are many. I'm going to give you three. One is that we become dulled toward God. Jonah could not in a million years have imagined himself in this situation. This one who had a personal relationship with God, who had grown up around those who also did, and who did great things for God, and who himself was one of God's select spokesmen as a prophet, he now finds himself in the hull of a ship that's headed for disaster for all aboard, and in particular for Jonah himself. So verse 4 says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now, notice the beginning of verse 4, then the Lord. Verse 1 begins, the word of the Lord. The principal actor in this drama is God, not Jonah. It's God who controls the direction of the wind, by which means God controls the direction of the ship that Jonah's on. It's not happenstance that this storm arose, but verse 4 is clear that God deliberately sent it. This is Jonah's faithful God chasing him down even as the prophet is running from God. And no wonder the sailors were afraid. Verse 4 tells us that the storm was so violent that it threatened to actually break the ship, destroy the ship itself. And so each sailor cried out to his own God. And the fact that they did this suggests that many individual deities were worshipped by these Phoenician sailors. The seasoned seamen, they also lightened the ship by tossing the cargo overboard, hoping that the lighter ship would not sink. We're told of that same tactic on one of the Apostle Paul's journeys in the New Testament. There was such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. So that's what they did. But where's Jonah in all of this? Storm has arisen. Jonah's on the ship. Where is he? The last part of verse 5 says, Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. (laughs) I mean, clearly a very deep sleep. As he's not aroused by this violent storm that's threatening to break the ship. And he's not aroused until the the captain awakens him And it's the captain's words that highlight Jonah's dullness to God's voice. Verse 6. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. He's saying to Jonah, we're all calling on our various gods. And the more we call on, the better chance we have that one of them is going to respond. So get with it. We need everybody calling on their God. But there's something in the captain's words that's significant for Jonah personally. When he tells Jonah, get up and call on your God, it's literally, arise and call on your God. 
And back in verse 2, when we're told about Jonah's original call by God, it's the same wording. When the NIV says in verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh, it's literally arise and go to Nineveh. God said to Jonah, arise and go. And now this captain comes and awakens him and he says, arise and call out to your God. The captain's using God's words, the words that Jonah is running from. It must have been a jolt to Jonah's conscience to hear them again. But this time, not from the Lord, but from a captain who's barking at him in a ship that Jonah has boarded for the express purpose of disobeying God. Now, at other times in Jonah's life, this would have been the time that he would have been spiritually awakened. He sinned. He's moving in the direction of further sin. But now God is tweaking his conscience. God's overseeing this entire episode. He sends a captain, a captain who uses the same word that God does. And in times past, that would have been a time to awaken Jonah's conscience. As a sinner, there had surely been other times in his life when he had begun to drift. But there was always the assurance that he had ultimately give heed to God. But now he finds himself in a spiritual condition that Jonah could never have imagined. As one has said, backslide he might. Lose something of the early spiritual highs he could, but always he knew in his heart of hearts his conscience would clamor for a hearing if he began to go too near the spiritual danger zone. Then he would be drawn back to God in repentance and receive restoration and recommissioning. But not this time. He shut his heart and his ears to God. He's grown cold on the Lord now. He's become dulled toward God. So the consequences of disobedience include dullness toward God and, secondly, becoming disassociated from God. Verse 7 says the sailors cast lots to find out who might be the one with whom the gods are displeased. They perhaps marked stones and put them into a container and then one was taken out and lo and behold, Jonah. The end of verse 7 says, the lot fell on Jonah. Of course, it's no accident that it fell on Jonah. God controls even seemingly random processes and events. The Bible says, the lot is cast, but its every decision is from the Lord. So they ask in verse 8, five questions of Jonah. Who's responsible for this? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And in verse 9, Jonah answers four of the five questions. But he leaves one unanswered. He owned up to being the culprit because we know in verse 10 the sailors say, What have you done? He owned his own Hebrew nationality and his religion. And yet the one question he did not answer is, What kind of work do you do? What is your occupation? (laughs) Why do you think? Well, I'm a spokesman for God. Oh, yeah, I'm part of the company of prophets, part of a select group to whom God speaks. And then I give his word to his people. 
Kind of hard to associate yourself as God's ambassador, as God's spokesman, as God's prophet, when you're in the situation that Jonah finds himself. And this is why I say then, friends, that one of the consequences of disobedience is disassociation from God. We drift further and further. You see this, friends, denial is always preceded by drift. Drift comes first. And then denial. Our hearts drift from God because something is not to our liking. God is on the losing end of the confrontation that is the battle for our allegiance. And so one bad turn leads to another. I wonder how many of us here used to serve God more faithfully than we do now. How many used to love their wives or submit to their husbands and family and serve their families better than you do now? How many of us used to love our church and its people more fully than we do now? If that's the case, you've drifted. And drift comes before denial. You've drifted because something or some things have not gone as you wanted. And so the writer of Hebrews warns us again. See to it, brothers and sisters. That none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And I'm telling you, friends, this is a danger for us. And it's a progressive process. A downward progression. Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, talks about this progression from Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Bear with me as I read what he says. It all starts with the person giving in to the sinful desires of his or her heart. So remember, the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit. There's something you're supposed to do. You don't want to do it. You don't like the way it's going. So you begin to drift. It all starts by giving in to the sinful desires. A married man becomes interested in a woman at work. He thinks about what it would be like to get to know her better. He begins to spend way too much time studying the way she dresses, the look of her face, the way she keeps her hair, the shape of her body. As he does this, his desires grow. He's not considered a physical relationship, and he's not thinking of leaving his wife at this point. He decides to talk with the woman. What harm could it do? After all, she's a colleague. So we ought to have a good relationship with her. It isn't long before they're having long lunches together. And they're talking often during the day. One day he offers to take her home and spends 45 minutes sitting close to her on the couch. He touches her hand. He tells her how much he appreciates their friendship on the way home. For the first time, he wishes he wasn't married. When he arrives home, he's careful about how he reports on his day. That night, he lies in bed next to his wife, thinking about the woman at work. He's progressively giving in to subtle patterns of sin, but he doesn't see them for what they are. Yet there's something else going on inside of him, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He's uneasy. He feels a bit guilty. He doesn't experience the joy he once did at seeing his wife at the end of a long day. He knows he's all too excited to go to work in the morning. He knows he's begun to be more critical of his wife 
and that he feels a unique kinship with this other woman. So he argues with himself, trying to quiet his conscience. He doesn't see it, but he's responding to subtle patterns of sin with subtle patterns of unbelief. He tells himself that he hasn't done anything wrong, that the Bible does not forbid a man's friendship with a woman, that he's a faithful husband, he hasn't done anything adulterous. He convinces himself that this relationship's a good thing. He needs more of these kinds of relationships at work. He's existed too long in the comfortable Christian ghetto and that God is actually pleased that he's reached out to someone. Not only is he acting upon the sinful desires of his heart, he's subtly backing away from the interpretive authority of Scripture. Giving in to patterns of sin has been followed by unbelief. And all the while, the man and his wife are still actively involved with their church. But underneath, he's begun to lose his spiritual moorings. A childlike trust in and obedience to the word has been his moral anchor. He had been sensitive to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But now he's cut the anchor chain and he's adrift and he doesn't know it. Because he's lost his spiritual moorings, he drifts further. Before long, he and his co-worker are leaving at lunch and not returning. He begins to volunteer for business trips when he knows she's going to be going. The relationship is increasingly physical. His relationship with his wife is disintegrating, but he doesn't care. In fact, he wonders why in the world he married her. He's spending more time at work in the evenings than on weekends, and so he's less involved with activities at his church. He's quit reading the Bible and praying. He feels quite trapped by the whole, quote, Christian thing. His wife pleads with him to go to, with her to counseling, but he's not interested. There are more evenings when he doesn't even come home. Lies fill his conversations with his wife. His pastor pursues and pleads with him, but he's unmoved, no longer attentive to the word or sensitive to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. His heart has become hard. And in fact, he's not sure he believes, quote, that stuff anymore. And before long... He's making plans to leave his wife. Sinful desires, unbelieving heart, turning away, hardened heart. Drift and then denial. That was obviously focused on a marital relationship. But it's anything that happens to which you respond contrary to what God says. That's going to send you in a drifting direction. So the consequences of disobedience include dullness toward God, being disassociated from God. And quickly, we become despairing about God. In verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do? To you to make the sea calm down for us. And Jonah says in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea. One preacher said there was nothing left for Jonah now. He felt that God had no more use for him. He was no longer sure whether he was a true servant of God or not. But worse, he's no longer sure whether he's still a true child of God or not. For where there is no obedience, there is no assurance. I know, I know I'm in extra innings here, but just stay with me for a minute. Friends, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. How many times I've heard people say, I don't, I don't think I'm cut out for this. I don't think I can do this Christian thing. 
But it all began with the the drift. And now I'm not sure I'm a child of God. I'm not sure this church thing is for me. He felt both physically and spiritually a castaway with no guarantee of rescue and the expectation of the reverse. Jonah's newfound friends, the sailors, tried everything in their powers to alleviate the problem. Verse 13 says they rode harder, but in verse 14 they begged for pardon for what they're now going to do, which is in fact to give Jonah up for dead by casting him overboard. And a despairing heart is an unbelieving heart, and an unbelieving heart begins with drift. We're going to pray. Before we do, I ask you, as I ask myself, to evaluate where are you in the process. And the take-home truth, sin costs you, friends, more than you intended to pay. And it takes you farther than you intended to go. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for gathering us before your word. And we thank you for giving us this word through the life of your servant. Father, we thank you for the realism of Holy Scripture. Because it is your word, because it's been given to us by you, you know every vestige of what real life is about. And so far from being an old dusty book that doesn't apply to what we have going on in our lives, Father, you have written to us through your servants and about their lives in ways that mirror our struggles. And so, Lord, I see myself in Jonah. We should see ourselves in Jonah. And I ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, to move upon the hearts of your people, to cause us to turn, to cause us to see where we are in this downward progression of sinful desires turning away from what you have clearly said to do, rationalizing it, making excuses for it so that it becomes unbelieving and then ultimately hardened. Oh, Lord, arrest that progression. We ask you to arrest that now, that there would be hearts that are turning back to you as a result of being convicted by you. And as a result of this, Lord, restore us to the joy of our salvation and restore us to usefulness in your service. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.